I'm Tom Schumacher, president and producer of Disney Theatrical, here today for the American Theater Wing. Our topic today on working in the theater is simply the state of the theater. Now this season, we're going to look at this topic from a number of angles, but today we take the particular perspective of institutions and producers. And to do that, we have two fantastic guests today. Let me introduce them to you. First up is my good friend Kevin McCollum. Now Kevin began his career as a performer, but he's perhaps best known as the Tony Award winning producer of a string of hits, including Avenue Q, The Drowsy Chaperone, In the Heights, and of course the groundbreaking Jonathan Larson musical, Rent. But Kevin's of particular interest to us today because he's done something particularly interesting. Now of course, with his partner Jeffrey Seller, he transferred In the Heights where they produced it off-Broadway to Broadway. But now you've changed the model completely and you've taken Avenue Q from Broadway off-Broadway. And then shaking the model up even further, you once again produce Rent, but this time in an off-Broadway theater. Kevin is deeply knowledgeable about uh, commercial theater on Broadway, off-Broadway. He's a master of touring. We sit on the Tony Administration Committee together, and I know no producer more dedicated to the art of producing than Kevin McCullough. Now, next to Kevin is Ben Cameron, who I barely know at all and who terrifies <laughs> me deeply because he is wickedly smart. He currently serves as the Program Director for Arts of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. Uh, perhaps to many of us in the theater, he's best known as the longtime chief of Theater Communications Group, an organization dedicated to networking and supporting all of the nonprofit regional theaters. But before that, he's a Yale graduate in dramaturgy, which led you into the regional theater working as a dramaturg, a director, an artistic director. He knows more about how institutions work, boards of directors, funding, audience development, how those organizations work. So I I'm delighted you're both here. Um, as people watching who may know you, they know neither of you are short on words or <laughs> ideas. Here's my premise for this idea of the state of the theater. It seems we're in troubled times, the news would tell us this, but it also seems we're in bifurcated times, that we have a lot of haves and we have a lot of have-nots. I checked with the Broadway League. This last season on Broadway, Broadway sales revenue was up 5.9%. Many people would tell me, well, that's just because ticket prices go up. But Attendance was up 5.4% on Broadway. That's interesting. Yet, when I look, as Kevin probably does, at the touring market, which is touring into commercial and into nonprofit theaters as we tour, subscription rates have plummeted. Um, and then if I look at those, my friends in regional theater, sales are, are struggling. Um, people are not necessarily coming. So it seems bifurcated. We have a New York situation and then the rest of the country. Ben, what gives? You know, I, Kevin would answer this better than I. I always think of New York as a little bit of an anomaly as opposed to a lot of other places around the country because n the New York industry is so heavily dependent on tourist trade. Uh, I remember a focus group, I think Radio City did, where they were talking about their high prices relative to other competitors. And their uh, consumers were saying basically making memories was the big phrase that resonated with them. And there was a sense that we'll pay hundreds of dollars because we're going to come once a year and we know this will be a lifetime of memories for the children we bring with us. For an audience member in another city for whom that making memories spectacle is not an option and who's expected to come much more frequently, the challenges and the issues are just very different. And so the commercial theater is a little bit of, of an outlier in that way in terms of how people behave and what the relationship's about, I think. Kevin, do you think it's the same people here in New York? Um, I think what happens to New York is it is a, it is a destination. Yeah. And even for those of us who live here and make New York a home, we all get many phone calls from friends who are coming to New York, what should I see is the first question. 
And when you ask people when they get off a plane or why you go to New York, broad, seen a Broadway show. Not seen a show. Seen a Broadway show. There's always like uh, they tell me that we're the number one tourist yeah. destination. Is that uh, true? It is. It is. And Vegas, perhaps, is is Vegas and New York were equal in the United States. I think with 32 and 31 million. No, I actually mean that Broadway is the number one tourist destination in New York. Yes, if it is. It actually, and we sell more tickets to Broadway shows and the live arts than we do for any sports team. Could you repeat that again we for our audience? We sell more tickets, Mr. Mayor, to arts in New York than any other. Uh, activity including sports and part of it is because we're eight times a week and we're also we're really a, a, a campus the great thing about Broadway is you feel even if you've never been here before there is an energy and an adrenaline and I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and so I respond to it immediately I remember being 18 and coming to New York and saying wow I, I love this town I'm gonna live here and you know somebody laughed at me because uh, I was in the men's glee club from the University of Cincinnati singing at Town Hall and uh, I just, I immediately got the energy. And I think tourists, everybody, this is a destination. On the road, um, it's a lifestyle choice. These theaters are trying to say, you live here, you work here, come to your neighborhood, see your neighborhood. It's like, you know, come to church. But some of these theaters, for, for example, I'll use Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. where I used to work, and they have the Amundsen Theater, which, where they produce, and where they have our shows booked mm -hmm. in. Both yes. of us have been there recently. Um, and then they have the Mark Taper Forum, which is essentially a producing house, not a booking house. But but that is a that is a plaza that exists on unto itself. There's nothing around it that gets any energy. And now that you have Disney Hall, that has been helpful. The new the new concert hall, and you also have the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in the same plaza. But next to it, you have the courthouse, which is basically you know they can, all the lawyers and stuff show up in the day, and then it becomes a ghost town at night. And the thing about Times Square, specifically. Um, there's so much to do in Times Square, uh, see a Broadway show, and also just people watch. It is such a great people watching, and I believe people are hungry and thirsty to, they're curious. We're curious creatures. I agree. And Times Square allows that voyeuristic, exciting, but if fascinating. But if, in fact, it is, because Ben, you said it about tourists, is Broadway really just tourists, do you think? It's not just tourists, but, but in terms of demographics came out recently about the average household income for Broadway audiences, I think, was in excess of $200,000. Mm -hmm. The average house, or the median income household in New York was $40,000. So it's mm -hmm. a very different demographic. You know, I, I think there are two things that Broadway does that the nonprofit theater will never do, by and large. Number one, there's celebrity presence. Because a lot of what we thrill about when we go to see a Broadway theater or a Broadway show is who the actors are on stage, and we know them as being known quantities and celebrities, which typically isn't true in the institutional theater. And the Broadway theater has an ability to do large-scale spectacle and especially large musicals that are simply beyond the purview of nonprofit theaters by and large. And well, that's fantastic to draw. But here's, you know, here's the wonderful, interesting irony about Broadway. Actually, if we took a... a a poll, and I, I haven't, but just looking at the scene, the not-for-profits on Broadway are the only ones who oftentimes can offer the celebrities what they want, which is a short oh. run, <laughs> and they're doing it for their career, not the money. And therefore, we are uh, some wonderful theater, uh, the not-for-profits uh, like, you know, MTC or Roundabout or Lincoln Center, they enjoy the patina right. of the commercial Broadway theater, but actually uh, they benefit from their mission being saying, we're only really gonna run it for 16 weeks, and therefore everyone's gonna work minimum, and then if we extend it, we'll start 
and we can get the star to stay, we'll stop, we'll start paying top dollar. I wish I had that formula. Well, to work but with. go ahead. And no, because, and that's yeah. the problem. That's the problem. That's a that's a conundrum of crisis for a commercial producer, uh, who doesn't have a theater uh, institution uh, behind him, but has to sort of figure out, okay, how are we going to do these shows? It's one of the reasons why most of my shows don't have stars, because a star to commit to a new musical for a year is uh, is very it's very difficult. difficult. And when they leave, you have to replace yes. them. Right. But very difficult. Go ahead. No, I was going. It's funny when you said nonprofits on Broadway. My mind went before the institutions here in New York to nonprofits around the country who transfer work in, like yes. Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf right. frequently brings their work in, et cetera. And this issue around choice and length of commitment has plagued the nonprofit theater in a different way for a long time. You know, especially when pilot season went to being 52 weeks yeah. a year, as opposed to just those couple actor availability. Months. Right. Agents don't want their actors to go out of town for the kind of time commitment that a nonprofit theater needs an actor to be. But, but and if they go out of town, they want to be in New York or a top city. Right. So, you know, you, well, they'll get or the show they want to, to go coming, to Pittsburgh. Or the show to be coming to New York, like that August Wilson tour right. thing used to Absolutely. be. But then, yes. but then look at the nonprofit thing from a different angle. Because I was I actually, in the last, for other reasons, in the last week, I have met with every theater owner in New York. I've met with the Nederlanders, I've met with Jujamson, I've met with the Schuberts. Um, and yeah, that's it. And, and the so humble and the humble Walt Disney Company with yeah. our own little venue, yes. the New Amsterdam. If you could only Theater. sell yourself on your show. If we could only, if I could only <laughs> plug myself. <laughs> that being said, there's a line for every theater in New York, a line of producers waiting to get them. And Absolutely. the announcement this week that Billy Elliot well, would not be running after the first of the year caused a huge shift of people moving around mm -hmm. theaters. Mm -hmm. But the irony of that, no one knows this better than Kevin, is that. What is our failure rate? Seventy percent? Eighty. Eighty percent? Yeah, absolutely. Of, of like where you, you you don't even recoup, and and there are those shows that just recoup but throw off no profit. Right. So ironically, um, as as the late Jerry Schoenfeld used to say, there's no profit profit like nonprofit. Right. But the converse of that is there's no nonprofit like profit. Yeah. That that for the vast majority of people, investing a dollar on Broadway is losing the money anyway. Right. But. The nonprofit model, which is seeking funding, struggles to get that funding. The, the not-for-profits, uh, I think, one of their one of the things. Yes, they have their mission. Yes, they can raise money for just an institutional ideal of what we represent in this country. And what happens is uh, they need to figure out ways to earn money outside of their own four walls. Oftentimes, they have a theater. Some have theaters on Broadway. Some have theaters off Broadway, and then move. And Anything above the 16 or 20 week subscription that they budgeted the week is just gravy for them. And every year, just like a co-op board needs a couple of people to move out to get the transfer fees, every year a not-for-profit needs some gravy. And it could be a big donation or it could be the extension of a show. Ben, is there any gravy being served on, out in the country right now? It's very hard. You know, uh, universally where you look, contributions are down uh, to theaters. Uh, subscriptions, as you've already and, uh, Just can you break, because you, you, I know you're very knowledgeable on this, because yeah, yeah. contributions, we have private contributions, you have, like yours, yeah. from the Dorstu Foundation stuff, and then there's government. Correct. All down, and it, any, any increased rate between them? Government's a little iffy because it really depends on where you live. You know, for example, we all know uh, Governor Sam, Sam Brown back in Kansas has killed the Kansas Arts Commission. There is no state arts council in Kansas anymore. So if you're in Kansas, that's a huge loss. How many loss. states don't have an arts commission? One. Kansas is the one. There have been 50 up until now, but with that change, and he vetoed the, the appropriation, act, he d exercised a line veto. Uh, other states have been seeing massive cuts in their arts councils, some more or less than others. A few states have shown dramatic increases. 
So the state arts budget really depends on where you live, and to some level, so does local arts funding. As a general trend, the National Endowment for the Arts budget is down, uh, not insignificantly. And when you were, just curious, because yeah, sure. you were at the endowment. I was. You ran the theater program. I was, and I left there in 1992. Our budget at that point in time was $172 million, and the budget currently is around 145, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's not even factoring in the differential in inflation and cost in, the, in a 20-year period. And, and what was it? Do you know historically, say, in the 70s um, or, or uh, 80s, where that budget was? I have this memory that it was very high, and now it's less than Army bands or something. Well, the, it, well, it was less than Army bands when I was there. I mean, and this pains me to say as a lifelong Democrat, uh, but we all were aware that it was under the Republican administrations that the, um, the National Endowment grew most significantly. It was the Nixon years where the budget really skyrocketed. Of course, it was started in the Johnson administration. The budget really grew, and then it showed basically incremental growth until Reagan came in, who sort of stalled it out for a while. Then it crept up again, and then uh, in the wake of the NEA controversies in the early 90s, mm -hmm. Congress halved the budget and took it to below $100 million, and it's been trying to recover from that ever since, but never has come back to and that. And what about foundation time. giving, like the Doris Duke and others? Foundation giving is really imperiled right now. I think a couple things have happened. In the wake of other social needs, foundations have, made to, have had to make very hard priority choices about if we want to fund medical care or environmental issues or the arts. Depending on the foundation, some have held their ground. Thank God for the Ford Foundation. Thank God for Mellon. In this business, thank God for Schubert. Yes. The Schubert Foundation is the largest funder of general operating support for theaters in the country. I think most people don't realize. I think their number is around $20 million a year. It's fantastic. Program. They do more for theater industry than any of the Which rest of us. Which is, ironically, money th that they're dispersing, that they're making from operating commercial theaters. Absolutely right. And, and they get to act like a foundation, which allows them to operate that way. And Vicki Reese is fantastic as their program yes. officer, and what she does for them is really extraordinary. But in many foundations, they've had to make a hard choice. And, and I'm grateful that at our foundation, Doris Duke said in the will, we must have an artistic purpose as part of our mission, so our arts program is insured. I, I see a lot of colleagues now facing arts programs that are being decimated and eliminated. And what about individual giving? And in corporate, which is the last, corporate giving, especially in the wake of the collapse and the economic collapse, really has walked away from the arts. I should also add, in terms of foundation giving, at our foundation, we lost $800 million when the market turned in 2008, which is about a third of our portfolio. And that was typical for foundations. So, so the, the corpus that you the had. corpus shrank shrinks, by a third. So it throws off less cash. Correct. So you can give less away. Correct. So even those of us who have stayed the course have less to give because of, with rare exception, because of our asset base shrinks. And presumably, um, nice rich man, nice rich lady who used to always write a big check to the local theater and which is such a vibrant part of their community, is doing the same thing, right? Depends on where you are. They, uh, um, there was certainly an upswing right after the economic collapse because there was a real sense of we've got to dig deep, we have to go that extra mile. And now that we've emerged into what's called the new normal by some people, there's a kind of acceptance of this diminished resource basis, what we're going to have to work with. And in line with that, those special gifts seem now to be disappearing. And so individual lines are being challenged as well. Same thing's happened in the commercial theater. I was going to ask, somebody who so you're gave, chasing the money too. Well, yeah. And somebody who has, has said also, there's two things happening in the commercial theater. One is, yes, people have less money. And two is, because they have less money, uh, ego is sort of taking over. Uh, it always, there always has been tremendous ego in the commercial theater because it's a great cocktail conversation. I'm a producer. I can't tell you how many people put $30,000 into rent who uh, I heard a story that they were at a cocktail party saying they produced rent, which is great. They need to have ownership of it. Is, is also the, the erosion of 
commercial producers. Now, I can always tell how much a show costs for the commercial producer uh, is because, and I'm talking about, you know, myself as well, oftentimes, however many names above the title, that's how many millions it costs. Mm -hmm. uh, is it harder to raise money? For example, yeah. you produced Bengal Tiger this year. Yeah. Was that hard to raise money for Bengal it Tiger? Was, it wasn't hard because, actually, it was one of the first shows I, I did that uh, it still was the ethic of a new writer, because Rajiv Joseph's a brilliant playwright. And uh, we had Robin Williams as a star who wanted to do it. it was, and, and I thought it was a very, very important uh, uh, piece of work and funny and interesting. Rajiv's a great writer and Robin really wanted to do it. So I felt it was great alchemy. It was rather easy. Uh, the budget was 3.3 million, I think, we raised. And uh, it was very easy to raise. Unfortunately, we only returned 50%. We did not uh, make a profit. We do have subsidiaries because every new musical has subsidiaries. But part of the package with these not-for-profits, which is great. It never would have been produced originally if it wasn't for, uh, you know, Michael Ritchie at uh, CTG. So the host theater. At the host theater. So how also uh, not-for-profits that start new work, that work with commercial producers, there's an income stream back to the original production. Yeah, well, let, let's production. address that because yeah. this is an interesting, and I want to talk about the convergence. Now we've yeah. talked about the separation and the, the, the disaster of, you know, we have a lot of tourists in support in New York. We have theaters struggling around the country. But we know, for example, that La Jolla Playhouse, um, uh, under Chris Ashley, that, that Jersey Boys starting at La Jolla Playhouse now pays money back to the La Jolla Playhouse. Right. So theaters are pursuing this, yeah? They've been pursuing it ever since Chorus Line. I mean, that was the one that really, for a nonprofit theater, set the model, was when Joe Papp moved Chorus Line to Broadway and it spun off money that became the endowment that sustained the theater. Suddenly, there was that awareness of the viability of the commercial transfer, even though I think I'm right when I say the first transfer of a nonprofit to the commercial context was Great White Hope, which came up from Arena Stage with James Earl Jones and Jane Alexander in the 60s. But that was the one that set the model. And ever since then, I think on the one level, we can overestimate how many people are doing this because, as you've already alluded, there are roughly 40 Broadway theaters to transfer to mm -hmm. in this context. And when we used to do the research every year, there would be roughly 18 or 19 theaters around the country receiving enhancement money in a given year out of 18 or 1900 nonprofit theaters right. around the country. So it's not. Well, but for the benefit of our viewers, how many uh, nonprofit theaters are in America right now? Or between 18 and 1900, according to the most recent estimate. And that's a remarkable thing it's because in the early 60s, there were less than three dozen. So we've right. gone from fewer than 36 to 1800 in about a 40 to 50 year period. The, the other thing is that, uh, you know, those statistics are interesting. However, I actually think there's more enhancement, especially in the percentage of new work. Mm -hmm. Because when you do a new piece of theater, there's subsidiaries, there's ongoing, you're, you're releasing a brand new bundle of rights. Oftentimes, how the not-for-profits are working now, it used to be the not-for-profits or the regional theaters would work and have a dramaturg on right. staff, and they would find three or four shows, maybe one would be a musical, and they would do them. And then people like me would come and see them. What's happening now, at least the way I work, is that, and others, others like me, that we actually, because the agents and the playwright want to know that they have a champion before, after, and during the regional production. So oftentimes, I will get calls from not-for-profit theaters in New York and also around the country saying, what do you got? Yes. It's like a dim sum menu. Well, God, I'm about a year away from this, but if you give me a date, and this is the other thing I need, I need an opening night. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I don't You need an opening day. night in the nonprofit Somewhere, theater yes. to, to, to give the... Uh, or off-Broadway. Yeah. Because my goal, my belief in the theater, 
And this is where I, I, I sometimes have arguments with, with purely institutional Sometimes thinking. have arguments? Purely institutional theater. We are a research and development business, whether it's not-for-profit or commercial. It's alchemy. And yet, the mm. whole industry is structured like manufacturing. On top of the manufacturing structure, economically, we have an emotional uh, uh, split on profit, not for profit, which I find disturbing. That what do you mean? The commercial people, what are they up to? Are they going to corrupt the institution? Well, the institution is looking for increased revenue any way they can, through donations, through being attached to original property, and having a piece of that exclusive licensing that kicks off revenue. So oftentimes, the, the dirty, it's not even a dirty secret. It should be open, and I want to talk about it. Not-for-profits um, look to the commercial producer to find their project that they can then put in front of their donors and say, look, we're originating a new musical. I'm just quiet. I sit back. I watch it. I, 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 fund, I fund it through enhancement because we don't know what will happen. I don't get any revenue from that theater, but they use that show, almost like what PBS does for their fundraising. They need something different to tell the banner to or their core subscribers and their board, look, they didn't necessarily develop it, but they, they will hosted it. They, they will produce the show for the commercial does that, thing. Does that resonate with you, Ben? It, it does. I, my only caveat about this, of course, is that um, when we talk about the nonprofits, and it sounds like we're talking about an industry behaving in a certain way, and really, they're all very different. I, yeah, I mean, even the Lort theaters, which are the largest institutional theaters, are about seventy-two or seventy-three theaters out of this eighteen hundred uh -huh. universe, and not even really. Oh, that small number is. is oh yeah, League of Resident like theater. the Guthrie the, and the, the Guthrie and the Taper and the Goodman and you know those the Lions. Are, those mm -hmm. are the the League of Resident Theaters, but that's less than 80 theaters out of the 1800. And even within that 80, I would imagine, unless things have dramatically changed, there's a subset of those that are having these kinds of relationships and not the industry and, and not nonprofit. But it's not a bad thing because yeah, what I don't think it's a bad thing either. Because what happens yeah, yeah. is the agent is trying to, everyone's trying to protect, like, let's see this through to the end. The problem is it's research and development. Right. And so some of these deals are structured as if it's a hit. Mm -hmm. When you don't even have a first draft, right? And well, and I'm going to ask about this question of safety. We all have to take that risk. To, we yeah, take that question that risk of safety together. because uh, I know that that there is an impression in some in some regional theaters that producing classics, things that are very well known, things that people that, that it can be easier to get people to attend that. There's a perception of that in some quarters. The irony, and it, that may be absolutely a perception in New York of our nonprofits, when you might argue that that the two most successful producing teams, y you and, and Jeffrey, and certainly David Stone, working on Broadway today, both in recent years brought shows, in the Heights in your case, um, uh, next to Normal in David's case, exquisitely produced shows in both cases, developed in a nonprofit, but then produced completely commercially, looking exactly like new work, new voices, new composers people hadn't seen before, the work that you would actually have thought would have organically grown and transferred, from a, if at all transferred from a nonprofit, that actually were completely fed commercially. Well, Did know, I read that wrong? No, but there's one, there's one error on In the Heights you need to know. In the Heights started off-Broadway at a theater Jeffrey and I built called 37 Arts. It's now the Baryshnikov Center for the Arts. We sold the theater a couple years ago. I don't think In the Heights ever would have been produced if we didn't have that, that theater that we... That space for... That space, because we needed a space that was a Broadway size, but economically, we needed, because it's research and development, we needed to see what 
if we could run for 100,000 a week before we could start spending 500,000 a week mm -hmm. on it. And that's what we did. But you're right in this, in this point. Our goal is commercial producers because if we recognize it's research and development and we don't have brand, we're not working with mm -hmm. a brand. Uh, a known title. Or a known title or something that was a movie or even an author you've ever heard of. We have to grow it organically. Therefore, we have to bring it to market at the lowest cost possible. And it's still, we had to raise $3 million and we ended up running for 26 weeks. By running for 26 weeks, we couldn't have run for 26 weeks in a not-for-profit mm -hmm. because they would have needed the theater for their next space, their next show. So in 26 weeks, in the last 10 weeks, we finally were able to take Lynn out of the show because he was in it. And some notes we were given, he was finally able to also see the show and that was really important to run that long to figure out what we needed to change to move it to Broadway. So that was purely a commercial enterprise. We did place it at the Eugene O'Neill Center for some development. Originally, or before we, we, we had all the commercial rights. And we So that's so actually. We had all the rights from the very beginning. And we just said, we have to start it here. And we have to just listen to the audience. And I think most producers, unfortunately, and many people who make their living in other areas, but then decide they're Broadway producers, which is great. I love them. But it's not their core business. It's, it's, it's something they do. It's, like an, it's how they invest their money. Uh, and it's a very different way of... Go ahead, Ben. Well, and theoretically, which may be just a, an assumption that we all have that everyone understands this, but I'm not sure everyone does. The, the primary research is potentially around two different things. I mean, part of the research that the commercial theater is wanting to do is, do we have a commercially viable product on our hand, and what are we trying to do? The nonprofit theater is not designed to lose money. The nonprofit is not a designation that it's not a money-making enterprise. It's a designation that the motive for the work is not a profit-making motive. And so the nonprofit's research in the best nonprofits is, is this, a, is this a property or a play that has a meaningful statement to make to our audiences, which is a different kind of, of research, and it's a different end product. I sense uh, from the shrugging there may be disagreement. Well, no, this is what it's interesting. I think you're absolutely right. That's how uh, institutional thinking works. They don't make profit. They make surplus. And this is what not-for-profits have if they're a successful not-for-profit. Oh. They're a surplus. Well, and, yep. and, and hopefully that goes into developing writers. It increases the salary. By profit, you, of, you, you mean that there's the thing. no one is individually profiting. Exactly. No one is, but and but, surplus is also contingent on contributed income. It's not surplus solely through the means of profit. Exactly. Just, just, just as yeah. a base but, case for most people, just so people understand, of in a classic, you know, major nonprofit, you know, what Bob Falls, the fantastic work he and Rock correct. are doing at the at the Goodman, okay. and certainly Michael Rich at the Tabor, how much is earned income and how much is contributed. For In the most recent study, and this slight, the bigger the theater, the more dependent you are on contributed, I mean on earned revenue, but typically it's now 53% of the cost uh, comes from earned sources and 47% of the cost comes from contributed sources. Well, and one of the things that's interesting, if you're also a theater in a, in a retail area, uh, a really heavy and I mean traditional retail. Yeah, and I think Seattle is one of those theaters. Oh, they're in trouble. Yes, right. but 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 the idea is that um, oftentimes what I've seen, and maybe this is 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 not happening as much. Oftentimes, the the Chamber of Commerce can also get behind the theater because they realize it's a gathering destination, and from restaurants and retail, there's been a lot of effort for the more commercial-minded people in the community 
to attach to the theater and not because the state is bankrupt. Well, but okay, but the vendors before, want people to Before I move away town. from this yeah. right. conversation, Seattle's an interesting example yeah. because there's a lot of focus on Seattle right now. It's a fantastic city, Beautiful. great population. Yes. Has, um, it's an interesting convergence of nonprofit and commercial. You have a regular roadhouse. I had a show in the roadhouse this summer. It's got a, a presenting, producing house, which is the Fifth Avenue, where um, I, I did a show this summer, which I, we enhanced, we Disney enhanced it, to see what that show would be and what its potential commercial life is. Research and development. Yeah, research and development there. Then they've got Seattle Rep, which is you know, just a big, you know, prosperous theater. They lost the Intamin. Well, it, it's a successful theater, but they lost the Intamin completely. Well, we don't, I, unless you know more recently than I do, the Intamin's suspended and given themselves a year to try to reorganize and see if they can return. So for the current season... So they need a hit it, show. <laughs> well, for the current season, it stopped. But, stopped. But, but, but you don't think it's lost completely? I, I don't know. You know, there, know. there was an, the other primary example in Seattle that everyone will point to is there was a point where everybody thought ACT Theater, mm -hmm. which stands for a contemporary theater, was down for the count and gone, and they retrenched and gave themselves a year and significantly rethought how they do business, and now they're back and doing actually very, very well. And the only reason I gave you the other yeah. look during Seattle Rep was at the worst of the economic downturn. Seattle Rep ended off going to a four-day work week and pointed in a lot of their work, really downsized their staff. And Seattle, which had been looked to as one of the meccas of the theater industry, is now a community. The empty space, one of their long theaters, mm -hmm. has closed. There's a real shifting going on in that landscape and a real stress on those and, theaters. And is Seattle a knows. petri dish of what the rest of America looks like? Where you've got struggling, closing, shifting economic, still commercial producers come but, through. But, but also the underlying you know, economics of Seattle are better than most towns, given they're so technologically driven with the headquarters of Microsoft and, and so much thinking going on in Boeing. There's a lot of thinking going on in that town, a lot of education. It's one of the better cities. The Twin Cities is, is also a wonderful city for the arts because of, of, of education. And I, I believe um, it's actually worse. The, the, in the Seattle? Regionals. No, oh, in the regionals. Elsewhere, okay. the, in regionals. Here's the other thing. You said the subscriptions were down. At the last uh, league meeting, uh, different road markets reported. Now, these are road markets that are purely, they're usually multi-use buildings that they house sometimes the orchestras and sometimes other things, and also Broadway. Broadway usually drives, when I was at the Ordway in St. Paul, Broadway had to make up 1.2 million every year of just institutional deficit that they knew when they built it, it was going to cost more just for electricity. What were you stuff. doing when it wasn't Broadway? Uh, the uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, the Minnesota Opera, and Broadway took, at, at least at the Ordway, took the worst dates because we had to take care of the community first. But then the pressure was when we got those dates, put in a blockbuster, put in something so we can keep the rents low. So as we went around the room, because things were so dire, and I believe it's a relationship of product, too, besides mm -hmm. the economy. This year, uh, there are some shows that we are seeing the subscriptions go up. It's fascinating. Um, as you know, blockbusters oftentimes are the tentpole, like mm -hmm. we had all those years of Phantom and Saigon, and then Lion King, you know, drove the road, uh, still does. And the idea that we are seeing an uptick because we went so down in, in 09. So actually there's recovery in the subscription Broadway market. And part of it is because with the internet and the frictionless way we can now market our shows, we actually are reaching more people to come to the theater. 
at a less of a cost. It's easier to find out what's mm -hmm. playing everywhere, which is also driving the New York well, sales up. I, I've listened, to Ben, you talked about this topic before, and it mm -hmm. is actually the next thing I wanted to get to, this, this question of technology friend or foe, because uh, just given the choices people have, mm -hmm. just the competition for the audience's mind, for their intellect, for their, their, their sheer pursuit of delight. Correct. The internet is a, and the potential of streaming, everything we can do, and yet, our world, commercial and nonprofit, is so interdependent on the internet because traditional means of marketing are collapsing right and left, and and the val and the cost of it goes up. Right. Traditional marketing cost goes up, impact goes down, and then we're social between social networking and paid advertising. What's your perception on the friend foe of the of, of technology? I don't even know if I'd consider it friend or foe in terms of I, I think it's it, it's a new arrival. It, it's the new thing in the room. I, that's a very inadequate way to say it. It, it. It's a given that we have to adjust around. I mean, I always come back to the theatrical experience is essentially different. And I, frankly, one of the things that was most interesting to me, I went to the TED Global Conference this summer, which is high-tech conference. And they walk out on stage at the beginning of TED Global and they say there's one ground rule at TED. And the ground rule is no laptops, no video phone, no, no cell phones, no videos unless you sit on the back row. And then they say, and we'll tell you why. The people that are going to present to you have spent a lot of time and effort in making their speeches for you and they deserve your attention. The energy you give them when they speak will feed them and make them better. And if one person turns on the cell phone, it gives everybody else in the room permission to do so. There's spillover space. If you've got to have those things, you can go watch it streamed in the next room. But if you're going to be in this room, they're off. No one utter to peep because everybody gets that, that fundamentally the human exchange is a different the, the irony of TED is that the about irony tech, of it's that, right. and yeah. it's a live well, event. It, where we're all sitting around going, should we let people tweet during the performance? Look, there's not a better computer, laptop, or iPhone than the human. Absolutely. And the thing about technology, I, I, this is how I look at it, just like my little caveat that it's research and development. That's why we have to do everything to understand that and work on the economics to represent research and development. Secondly, the internet is a tool. It's not a destination. And one of the things, because it's such a new thing in the human brain and the human experience, we haven't fully gotten over the fact, look what we can do. And so we're on the, as if it, it's the destination. No. It's a platform to distribute yeah. information. It's a tool I, to I, decide I take your how point. you're going to live your life. I take your point. But then if I look at the audience, particularly the one that, that for today's purposes, Ben's right. representing, and, and I think of just the number of things I can do. The, the, um, in two categories. One is an artist right. in the democratization of the arts, which you speak about a lot. Mm -hmm. This idea that artists can pursue careers wholly going down the technology path mm -hmm. and bypassing needing commercial producers, needing anybody else. And from an audience point of view, I can, I can gladly spend an evening curating my, my entertainment in my exact time zone I want to. I watch exactly what I want to watch. I, I've seen your TED lecture. I encourage everyone to see it. It's really compelling. And it's a miracle. You go to the TED app, you click on it, you put Ben's name in, you click on it, and there for 17 minutes, he hollers at you in the most fantastic <laughs> way. It works on the abs it's, or the upper body. It's a, the yeah, <laughs> I want to exercise to it. It's the most, I, I want you to wake me up in the morning and slap me Not around and teach me about the arts. So well, what do you think? And the third issue, even beyond that, is if, if it's true that the typical American now sees 6,000 different marketing messages every single day. How many? 6,000. But 3,000 of them are Disney. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, between cookies and subway ads, and, you see, yeah. so even getting somebody's attention to know you've got a show is a very different thing than it used and to be. And is that actually more than, than you and I, we all grew up on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think so. Also, if it was in the newspaper, it was good. Now, it's more so, you know, we talk about social networking, and for me, that's everything for the future. And my shows deal with young people, and young people will always tell us what we forgot. 
And, and that is basically, word of mouth is so important because everyone, because you are barraged, there's ownership and discovery. What people like more than pleasure, actually, is a surprise. The brain loves to be surprised. And if you can be the first one to, you know, when it comes to a piece of the, like, know about something, it's part of the appeal of title of show for me, why I produced it, because it's kids trying to put on a show against all odds, against the establishment, how do you book a theater? And it really is about build a family with your friends to get through this world. And all my shows have that ethic, against all odds, build your family, learn to love each other, and create a family. So is that well, the greatest strength for your That's what people are market? hungry for, and the internet, if you can find, that's why it's getting so niche because you want to be associated with a certain community, and then if you can bring that community to your show, it can, it can become exponential. You know, we funded a lot of audience research in a lot of fields around the country. It's part of what we do at the foundation, and part of what that research is teaching us most recently is that two things that I thought were really interesting. Number one is our understanding of uh, the audience has often been based on the ticket buyer, and whereas the ticket buyer is the decision maker, more and more typically the ticket buyer is bringing other people along, and the sort of non-decision non maker has a very different perspective on the value of the experience than the decision maker who said, let's go, and I'm picking up the bill. And we haven't understood that other. Mm -hmm. The other thing which is really clear is that for a lot of people who aren't the ticket buyers and who aren't dedicated to the art form, it's the social dimension of the experience that's the draw, less the show in, in, in terms writ large. And whereas we talk very eloquently about the show, helping people understand the social dimension is really key. In, in a related field, this is one of my favorite stories, in a related field recently we did a, a survey in dance around the country and we asked dance audiences, what do you like when you go to a dance concert? What are the, th the bells and whistles around it you like? What do you wish you had that you don't have access to now? And uh, the number one answer came back. Audience says, we want unmediated conversation with each other. They basically said, it's great when you introduce us to Bill T. Jones. When Bill T. comes in, we get it. Bill T. leaves town and the conversation's over. If we had an ongoing conversation about dance and we knew who else liked dance and we had that going on socially, you could drop Bill in and out of that, but the what, what does that really mean? You're building, for the you're helping them build their own families based on their passion, Correct. and they think it's their little secret, and they're isolated in their enjoyment. They really need an entertainment mixer and a way to gather around this ethic of the live arts, and we have to do a better job doing that. And is, that and is that to bring them into the room together. live together, or so, let them be in so they satellite? Can, we, I, when I was at the Ordway, I created something called Ordway Circle of the Stars, which was basically a name to give the people who cared about the Ordway a reason to party. Right. <laughs> and right. I provided some speakers yeah. and some things, and, but it really said, you're safe. You don't have to sit on your internet, and, and you can actually come to the building, be immersed in a show, and see your own kind. People who have your Your state, tribe. Your, your, your tribe. And we, I think arts organizations should really do, and I see that in the, I mean, when I did Rent, we built a tribe in that line every Absolutely. night. We were the first people to offer $20 mm -hmm. tickets in the front two rows, and it became a social phenomenon in yeah. front of that theater until insurance made us get rid of the line because of, you know, insurance. And, you know, the book industry did that <laughs> long before we did. You know, you used to pick up, when I was in college, you'd pick up Henry James and it had critical essays in the back, mm -hmm. and now you pick it up and it says questions for discussion. And the literature industry knows the value of book clubs. Yeah. My favorite, and when we revealed this dance stuff, this woman in Arkansas, this was at a big meeting of 500 dance professionals from all over the country, and this woman from Arkansas said, well, I'll tell you what we do in Arkansas, and you saw every jaded New Yorker eyeball roll back in their heads, like, ugh, this is gonna be really good. And she said, we have a big glass wall at the front of the theater, we put a post-it note on the outside of every program that says, tell us about it. People write their comments, they go out in the intermission and put their post-it notes up. 
Everybody walks out to see what else everybody thinks. All the dancers come out to see what everybody thinks. We keep the building open like because people won't leave. It's not necessarily a high-tech solution. It's people want to have conversation it's, and celebrate. It's their, then, way, then it's their wailing wall. It's their tribe. It's their wailing wall. Is that part of your this thesis you take on a lot of the democratization of the arts, that, that, that everyone is allowed to be the critic, everyone is allowed to be the commentator, and, and what does that mean to yeah. traditional um, uh, reporting, writing, all the journalism around the theater? If you're a producer, you have a, you have a curious relationship yeah. with journalism, which is you're happy to tell everyone when you've got a great review, and there is no role in the culture for a critic when you've got a bad review. I, I'm usually in that category based on my experience. <laughs> but, um, uh, but suddenly, of late, things have turned around. Amazing uh, what, a, what Beginning what, of the apocalypse yes, because absolutely. I got a good review. So um, I, I suddenly think there's some value in it. Is, is the whole traditional journalism around, around theater changing because of this? Hugely. Well, my, my stepfather was an opera and drama critic in Hawaii, so I grew up for three years living with an opera and drama critic. It's hard to be a critic, I'm sure. Uh, and it was not <laughs> a great relationship, trust me. But I will say this. One of the things the not-for-profits are doing, and I've heard about this recently, is, especially with new work, and I think this is dangerous, because mm -hmm. it is research and development, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, we're bringing them into like, you're the great audience, right. you know, we're so thrilled to have you, enjoy. I know some theaters are actually letting the audience say, we want your comments before the show begins. And I think actually, before the show I mean, before the show begins, we want you. During the curtain speech, you're part of solicit. You're part of our, you know, really, so please give us your comments. So oh, oh. I believe, and I discussed with a colleague about this, if you, and I disagree with that, because I think if you're watching a show knowing that you have to figure out what you like and don't like, rather than just let it wash over you, I'm not get, it's not helping the show. It's not helping because I think the mindset of I'm an authority yeah, yeah. on something I don't. If somebody shows me a new car to test drive, and I'm not don't know cars, right. and I said, you know, if I'm just going to go and see what it, you know, take a ride, that's one thing. If I know I'm in that car to judge it, I'm going to have a very different experience. And I just think we have to be very careful. And if we recognize this is research and development, the thing about gossip in the theater that I don't agree with, and a lot of gossip columnists are or critics say, well, it's like sport. The problem is, is you can win or lose a game and tomorrow there's another one to play. Unfortunately, because we have terrible points of distribution in the theater, the critic, even though they say they're not as in charge, everything that's written about a show because of the internet gets put in one spot and it never goes away, even things that aren't true about the development. So your window for success is very limited. And, and also, once the perception has gotten wrong once, it feeds on that. You know, I had, a, I had a, a, an issue that was just incorrect information. It still exists. Yeah. You know, it still exists that Absolutely. we're doing a show that we haven't been doing for three years. It just, you can't get rid of it. Yeah, we have the same thing in a different way in terms of the blog. Blogs are now being quoted as, as sources. As sources, I mean, yeah. the, the bottom line, sort of, again, in surveys, repeatedly, people would prefer to believe a fellow theater goer over a critic. When I first saw that, and that's why the nature of this is changing. I think both newspaper circulation is down, blogs are up, and people are looking more and more to colleagues to guide their use of social time. Well, this, of course, does, it goes back to the, just the economics of marketing. Yeah. Absolutely. In that the local newspaper no longer has an arts section for economic reasons. Correct. Ad, ad rates for are movies. Down. Yeah. So yeah, and even yeah, it's they have movies, some movie. There's no theater advertised in there, and there's no theater editorial. Correct. We used to come into town, you'd get a big piece about your show arriving, and everyone read it. Now no one's reading it because it's right. not there. Then you get a review, 
it, whether it's good or bad, it usually doesn't affect your tour because mm -hmm. you probably left town or you've mm -hmm. sold what you're going to sell by that time, which means we rely heavily on the blogosphere, right? The internet, we, absolutely. We do, enormously. I want to shift conversation a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Terry Teachout, who I respect enormously, I don't always agree with him, of course, as no one ever agrees with just one person writing, but the Wall Street Journal, I think, covers American theater in an extraordinary way, and I think he, because he is constantly covering regional theater as well as They Broadway. have a budget. Yeah, and, and he does a beautiful job at it. And he had a piece recently about playwrights cannot make a living as a playwright. And he listed all the playwrights that we love and that they're all making money writing screenplays. So then by extension, I asked the question, can people actually make a living in the theater today? You can make a killing yeah. if you have a big hit, if you're central to that. Can you make a living? I, I, I believe an artist is an artist. And uh, uh, whether you're writing plays or writing film or writing television, you know, oftentimes, you know, I think television gets a bad name, but actually a lot of playwrighting friends of mine love writing for television. Uh, what is a living? You know, where are you living? What are you? Should you have a place in L.A. and a place in New York? Should it's it it it, it it's all about I think exposure. And Broadway is one of the few places, or off Broadway, or the theater regionally, where if you get one person who's in one of these theaters to be your champion, you actually get your work seen. There are so many writers who are writers in L.A. who never get to write. But actually, they have 20 scripts and three screenplays, and they've just never been produced yet. And they're, they're, they're doing, they might be working in a restaurant, but they really you know, define themselves as a writer. The great thing about the theater is you can open up that garage and put on your show. The great thing about New York, you could go into a 50-seat theater. You can raise $10,000 and put on a new play. You really can in New York. You don't have to wait for a studio executive to say, we're going to put you on network at 8.30 or a Saturday morning show. Do you feel that way around the country? Well, the issues of undercompensation have been very much at the table as long as I've been in this business, so for at least 35 years. And I, I've never remember a time where we had any illusion that the majority of members of any craft, playwrights, designers, actors included, had the kind of lives of economic dignity to which we thought they were entitled. And especially now what we are seeing, unfortunately, given that most theaters are 40 to 50 years old, the biggest ones, we're seeing a generation moving into their retirement years and they don't have the money to retire on and no jobs to go to and we have a big chronic issue. You know, around playwrights, I think other people in other industry or other parts of the business would envy them the opportunity to go back and forth between film and television and create a really vibrant economic life. A lot of our stage carpenters don't have that possibility. The people that they can't shift between no, the, the, the application of their craft. If you're the education director in a regional theater, yeah. you're working for subst uh, uh, subsistent wages. I mean, you're you're paying your rent, but not much more. But you don't have those other opportunities, and so it it's a chronic, ongoing issue. It I think I, what we've got to acknowledge is in the nonprofit, at least, the nonprofit as an industry is predicated on discounted labor. I mean, no one is paid what they w should and would be paid in a commercial account. And my, and my experience is a little different because by, if, I, if I get the rights to something, yes, it's not a huge payday, but it's, it's more than you know, whatever the minimum is to pay up front. I believe we should be paying more up front and share more with the author of the journey to motivate also to get the thing produced more so that if, even if it has, hits bumps along the way, you just don't drop it too soon. Uh, studios do this, uh, and uh, but in the theater, it's not. A, it, there's no work for hire, and I'm not an advocate for work for hire in the theater. But I am an advocate for cast your producer too, and cast your regional theater too. Who's 
who, if you're fortunate enough to write something, really decide, don't, don't be afraid to, to reach out to a commercial entity like myself or somebody else, say, I think this is, do you like this play? Yes. Well, I think I'd like to do this. How do I monetize it? Uh, agents are great, but oftentimes agents are under pressure from their own of who's hot, who's not. We all know in agencies, well, and they have their own corporate percent. They have their own, and and find your advocate. And I, I get frustrated sometimes where I find I'm working with a young writer, they get lawyered and agented up, and then you know they're already deciding. Well, you're a successful producer, so therefore it has to be this because he has no money. It's like, well, great, I understand that, but. If we do it this way, I can get him more money now. You can launch the endeavor. I can launch it. We can get it started. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I donate. And, I, you know, Jonathan Larson, you know, he didn't have a lot of money. And we tried to get him some money for the show. But, you know, there was agents and lawyers early on. And we finally got it done. But it, it took too long. It took too long. And I, these things take too long to get money into the hands of artists. I agree with that. Well, and I do think fundamentally there's a different set of questions that has to be on the table. I think uh, traditionally we've looked at a new play about how do you produce my play and what are we going to do for your play, and I think, or, or whatever the artist relationship is. And I think given the amount of choice that audiences have and remembering that all of these negative trends predate the economic collapse by a decade. We've been losing audience as long as this millennium has been around. It's not just since 2008. I think the fundamental question, I know a lot of people that would love to do more new work, but that just basically say, I, we can't sell it. Mm -hmm. And I think the real question is, what are theaters and playwrights going to do together to develop the audience for new work, as opposed to what are you going to do to produce my play? That's a different way of thinking than typically we've pursued. Mm -hmm. And some of, I think, the most interesting examples where you see new work being done and encouraged happens from long-term relationships like one of my favorites is James Still, a playwright, is in his 14th year as a resident playwright for Indiana Rep, and he lives in Los Angeles. But he comes and goes, and he has a relationship with that community that's very different than just produce my play, I come to town. Because that's day. a forward-thinking plan. And He's part of it. So the, my last question for us yeah. is, is um, there's a quote that I've heard you use, and, and actually many people use it. It's quoting Wayne Gretzky, the, the hockey oh, yeah. player. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's this quote that we hear a lot because you know, how is it that you're a great hockey player? Why are you so successful? Because he says, Sk I skate to where the puck will be. Right. right. So where's the puck going? You, you, you know, prognosticate. What should we be doing? You know, if we're not advocates for our industry, whether that is the nonprofit arts and theater particularly in this case, or commercial theater and commercial theater on Broadway, if we're not the advocates for it, who's right. going to be? What should we be doing and where should we be going? And what's the real forward thinking, not how do we get through this season? I think some of it we've suggested. I, I think part of it is around thinking about the social dimension as opposed to simply the aesthetic dimension. The, the devil for the nonprofit, and I, I hope I'm wrong about this, but part of what I can't figure out how to monetize, nor do I, do I know what it means for buildings, because I know there's been a big explosion of buildings going up lately, and I've thought, I'm too... You mean buildings for them? Yeah, big performance. I know someone who once called that the edifice complex. The edifice complex, and often they're, they're predicated around a, a, a prominent architect to be a landmark destination, mm -hmm. which will get people into the building one time, but if the work's not valuable, they've seen the building, they're not going to come back. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of my worry about that is I just think I don't know if the theater of the future is a 2,000-seat house with big screens like the New World Symphony or if it's this TV studio like this with camera feeds into 40 locations. And if I don't know this, why am I going to build a 2,000-seat house right now? Unless, I mean, Broadway, I think the future of theater is epic imagination in intimate encounter. 
I think people want intimacy, they want closeness, they want a big imaginative experience they can't have anywhere else. And how you bring those two things together, clearly you see it in the four Broadway theater all the time. You have epic production values, you have big names, you have huge kinds of resources that for the nonprofit theater, bringing that kind of vastness of experience in a tight space together, lacking the celebrities, that's what we're trying to, to figure out. And I think there's some good signs about how people are doing it, but I think that's what the future is. I think the economic engine for the theater, the real economic engine in terms of just how many more tickets you can sell, is in music storytelling. With music storytelling. I, I, there are great plays being written, and you, know, you can always hear Shakespeare, and it's done more than anything else. But new musicals, and maybe it's because it's my, my certain love. And I agree with intimacy, but I also think our stories have to be stories where people make a difference and you actually belong to a community. I think the art has to reflect the time we're in. And I think one of the reasons why, in terms of where the puck is going, one of the things about Rent in the Heights, Avenue Q, and even Drowsy, is I was thirsty to see those shows. I was thirsty to see, at that time I was 33, to see kids just out of school trying to keep their voice and find out where their place is in life. I think that's timeless. I think it's why La Boheme is still in our culture as, as such a great uh, piece of art. The bohemian idea that who am I and how do I learn to love and how do I find safety, those are real reasons to sing. And uh, I think that's a great structure for any musical and it's something I look for, what I always say, starting on the earth and ending in the heavens. Our stories have to have redemption. They have to be the, you know, not an organized religion, but a way that human beings matter. That's why we're live. That's why I hope a, a studio and streaming. I think this is great for information. I don't ever want television or the computer to be a destination. I want Although it, it is a, becoming a I want it to be a tool. It's a different tool. It's a destination for network television. I want it to be a tool. But, I, mean, I, I want it to be a tool to get out of your cave. But do you think Nick it, Heitner, who's brilliantly broadcasting yeah. from the National He's brilliantly theater, broadcasting. Is that advertising or is that an actual audience theater experience, really? I don't think it's a theater experience. You're not in the theater. You're not living and breathing. I can watch, if I was religious, and I could watch the Crystal Cathedral in the 80s when I worked for Disney in uh, 90s, and I could see it on television and say, oh, that's interesting, and it's fine. I understand what that is, but I can't imagine, you know, if, if you're, very, you, you're in the Christical Theater, it's a very different piece of theater. Uh, it's a very different experience. I think living, I, don't, I think all this talking that we do is how we, you know, stay balanced. The real communication is the fact that I'm spending time with the energy of this creature named Ben Cameron and, and Tom Schumacher, not because of what we're saying, but there's something about we are connected because we know intellectually we care about the same thing, and we chose to gather at the same time to take our our treasure of time and intellect and soul and be together. You have to be in a theater. Well, that's it is the that's unique thing is, about our form. You know, I we so much is said, and I've I've been allied both in the film and the theater industry and about 3D, trying to make film mm -hmm. more present. And of course, our great irony is that for the last 2,000 plus years, we've been live and 3D, happening by day and now by night, um, uh, we've been present for you as an art form. And that, there is something extraordinary about that coming together. But I don't know in, this, in a new world of, of connecting cyberly as we do, how to remind people or pull them in and get them to understand that. And it is essential, isn't it, to the question of the state of the theater today? I think it's a critical question. And I think we're all agreed that it's the live that has fed and nourished us. I think there and, and dimensions beyond ours things we took for granted as premises around the live exchange are being 
shifted. When we're facing a generation now who is more and more taking experience we took for granted as live and having them online, I don't know what that will predicate, and some groups are now experimenting, for example, with a sort of hybrid where performers are in multiple locations doing the same performance, and the, they're being hooked up by technology, so you have pockets of 40 people watching one aggregated performance of an audience of aggregated 300 people, but you're seeing them in 30 units. I don't know if I'm explaining this well or not, but it's a sort of hybrid of it's somewhat live, it's somewhat cyber. I've got somebody live and I've got somebody cyber I'm watching. Correct, and, and together they're making one performance. Yeah. I, I believe this. I believe that as technology continues to drive us, the need to gather in real time is going to be greater because it's how we're designed. Everything we're learning right now, and remember, we're early days on technology. It's all up here. This is longing. I think we're all feeling it. I think the world is, there's chaos. And I think theater gives us a sanctuary to sort of be with our thoughts, see our reflection. And the stories that work are stories that are relevant to our time. I believe building families, falling in love, being good to each other, that's a commodity the theater will always uh, profit by, whether you're for profit or not for profit. It's an excellent summary of, of uh, where we are. And I think perhaps even surprising for some people that um, that's the perspective from the commercial yeah. producer. That's, I gotta um, figure out how to gather people and I gotta give them something they're thirsty for in their life. And that's, how do, how do, you, how do you find home? And thank you for your. Uh, thank you. You are um, a legend at this, and uh, I, I did. <laughs> I meant it at the top when I said you terrify me, because uh, if, if 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 we're supposed to go to where the puck is going, I don't know where your puck is headed. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Kevin, thank you. You really uh, you get my this. My pleasure to be in the room with Ben. So my this is this you, is Tom. my moment now thank to actually you. turn to the camera oh, turn. and read off the teleprompter. My only technical support used today, other than the corset and the truss that I'm wearing. So. Thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Tom Schumacher. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theatre and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theater television programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the Wing, and thanks for watching.